Welcome again, everyone. And um, this is a little podcast we've put together uh, in order to try and uh, uh, cover some of the questions we didn't have time to cover during the webinar on what is keeping bankers up at night. Uh, these are the questions we picked up from the chat. And in this podcast, um, each of our panelists, uh, helped by Jane, will try and cover some of the questions, as I said, that we haven't had a chance to cover during the, the live webinar. Thanks, Olivier. Um, we had a, did a little touching on Brexit, but actually there's a specific question here which raises um, the, um, the, the point about whether the UK outside the EU will actually start to diverge and whether you're going to start to get um, uh, a new uh, developing legal framework within um, the UK which might clash with other systems. So um, would anybody like to discuss that particular Brexit risk? Um, maybe, maybe Emmanuel, you've got a foot both sides of the channel. Well, it's, um, <laughs> it's an ongoing issue uh, that we, and, and it, I think it's really rightly phrased here. We, we have different systems and background that have been progressively aligned through the, uh, the EU. And uh, we, we have now to, to uh, run back to, to our separate approaches. And um, with the, um, uh, the, uh, the EU on one side, the UK on the other side, having uh, uh, sort of their, their, their legal way, um, I, I still believe that for, uh, for the financial world, uh, we have been used for decades to work uh, across the globe in a consistent manner between, uh, and, and by the way, largely inspired by, I would say, the, uh, um, the, 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 the British culture, the, the, the financial engineering from, uh, from the UK. Uh, and, um, and so I, I don't see that as a, as a major risk because by nature, finance is, is an international trade and, and we can't just... Um, built walls um, between, uh, between jurisdictions on the way we deal with, uh, we, with money and, and finance. So that's, that's my point of view. It, it, it's, the, it's a risk, but I'm, I'm really confident that, as usual, we'll find ways to, uh, to work all together in a consistent manner. Yes, it's always, a, the question is always whether pr the pragmatism um, of the of industry participants will prevail over some of the um, rather more tricky politics. And I would add, sorry, Jen, I would add that the, uh, we, we, we all have the, uh, the same, the same uh, background, which, which are the, the, the Basel principles and the, uh, mm. the way the industry uh, is uh, organized uh, along the lines of, of the Basel principles. So even if we have seen um, that between the US, for instance, and, and Europe as at large, uh, there can be uh, differences in, in the interpretation and the, uh, there are still a common, a common background, which, which is a, an important uh, aspect on, on a large number of these topics. Yeah, I, I mean, thank goodness there's still a lot of multilateral um, rule, uh, rule making. Um, Catherine, I'm, I'm going to ask you about a couple of questions which I'm going to tie together. So there's a short one, which is, do you think COVID-19 will transform 
culture within legacy banks. And then there's a specific one which raises the, the working, big working from home question, um, which is that um, there's been um, two, two approaches have emerged, you know, the likes of Goldman Sachs saying, right, you know, back to the office. Um, and other employers saying it'll never be the same again. You know, if you don't, if you never want to come into the office again, that's that's fine. We've proved we can work remotely. So, what what are these sort of cultural, in terms of the working environment, uh, uh, le legacy? Uh, what's the legacy of COVID on that front? Yeah, I think both of these questions are, are definitely interrelated, and and really the answer is is the same. Is that I I, I think COVID nineteen will fundamentally change culture. For all of us in in all cross sections of society and all different organizations because it has had such an impact on our lives for such a significant length of time and we're still in it it's 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 not finished and human beings uh, have an immense capacity for for adapting to things and there are many positives that actually come from uh, moments like this when we've had to adapt you know there's no denying that uh, organizations are saving money on rent uh, individuals are saving money and time on on travel uh, we on our webinar like today can get together with people from all across the world there are definitely definitely advantages and I think that those advantages will will remain by by default because because they they benefit everybody so the answer is yes, it will change culture. What will that culture look like? That's a harder question, obviously, to answer, and we don't know yet. We can we can suppose and, and, and guess only. And so it's not a, a surprise to see that there are all these conflicting message, messages from organizations, some that are saying, right, let's get back to the way it was, everybody back in the office. Others that are saying, we're actually going to go back to hot desk, we're going to go to hot desking, we're going to get rid of that, that um, you know, office and, and downsize and we're, we're going to only remote work from home remotely. So there's there are two extremes to this and probably... I thought, I thought we were, I thought hybrid was the new normal. Hybrid is the new normal, exactly. So probably somewhere in, bet in between is the best um, outcome for everybody. And the truth is, is that each organisation is going to have to make those decisions. I think what they need to do is listen to the individuals who are working for them. So the individuals I coach, some of them are saying, yeah, it's great. My employer is going to be flexible from now on. I can manage my own timetable. Others are saying to me, oh, I'm being imposed upon and told that I have to go back three days a week. Actually, it's a real inconvenience to me. So it's yeah. about dialogue, I think, and organizations need to listen to the people who are working for them. Yeah, I think, Olivia, I think you've had some uh, experience of this managing your consultancy. Yes, and and um, I, I love the point that um, bo both Emmanuel and Catherine made earlier on about the the, the degree of uncertainty uh, that is still ahead of us. Because I think you know, in terms of uh, how this affects business models, how it affects you know impacts on banks, etc., that's still um, very much the unknown. And and also in terms of managing people and what the new model that emerges will be like, uh, that's also very uncertain at the moment, as, as Catherine just said. I mean, I think you know managers know how to manage teams in the office, you know. Right, more or less. And, uh, you know, now managers have had to learn how to manage um, teams remotely. And so everyone's kind of doing the same. So when people say hybrid, they're talking about the next phase. You know, I, I we all think that hybrid is the next normal, but actually we haven't had a hybrid yet. We, we've had mostly at home and mostly at the office. So this hybrid is, I think, more complex and more difficult to manage and is open to 
you know, new things. And therefore, once it's new, um, risk will emerge and we'll have to kind of adapt. And again, you know, that's what um, it comes out of the conversation on the chat and also what Catherine was saying, you know, adapting is, is what it's all about. But it's a lot of adapting very quickly. And I think, you know, as a risk professional, um, uncertainty and the need to adapt do worry me. It's exciting, but it's also a bit worrying. Yeah. Um, Paul, did you want to add something on on that issue of the sort of um, adaptation um, before I, I wanted to ask you to dig down a bit more into some of these ESG um, questions? Well, I, I, I'd like to, to go to go on to the ESG if we if we can. I, mean, I think we, 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 we've we've covered the, you know the hybrid you know, hybrid non hybrid where where we go from here. The future will unfold and and people will adapt. Organisations will adapt and and. Uh, I, I think for organisations, it, it pays to keep your options open rather than play your hand too early. Because uh, once you're committed to you, it's very hard to to, to reverse or reverse strategies. So those who those who are sort of sitting on the sidelines and letting this thing unfold, whilst giving flexibility to their employees, are the ones that will have more options going forward. Yeah. And so on the ESG, um, so some some of the questions that we we touched on one or two, um, but one of the ones was that. Um, it's a comment actually, but it begs a question. ESG must be part of all companies, not a product in its own right. Hmm. Um, too many um, organizations play the ESG card for instrumental, um, they might might have said greenwashing reasons rather than hmm. not quite sure what means, normative reasons. So what, what do you what do you Paul, how does this fit into your you know chief risk officer sort of mindset? This, this is just an, another leg of the journey. Uh, I think one of the comments just, just above that talked about banks maybe pulling out of uh, new coal-powered fire states, yeah. coal, coal stations and pipelines, etc. You know, if you look at uh, project finance teams or the project finance disclosures in, in reporting accounts for the last 20 years of, of big banks, you know, their, their adherence to the equator principles. Is, is something that, that, is, that is quite clear with regard to do no harm, environmental damage, impact practices, etc. But with very much a focus on the environment, that focus is shifting now to focus on climate and impact on climate. And, um, and, and there's a very good speech that was uh, that I'll, I'll mention, I'll name check, is by Andrew Hauser from the Bank of England, Executive Director. And it was called From Hot Air, from, from hot air to Cold Hard Facts which talks about asset allocation strategies. Uh, and, you know, the new concept, a new word on me was called greeniums with regard to, you know, how you can uh, arbitrage and have advantage from, from you know, shifting uh, strategically towards supporting environmentally and climate friendly projects. The difficulty is what do you do with the rest? And that is where the, the government have got to play a role in supporting this transitional risk, just not abandoning the legacy industries that got us to where we are. Uh, and help them on the journey, and that requires intelligent thought. It requires intervention, and it requires, you know, you know um, to say, you know, some some very thoughtful planning to to to, to you know, take everybody with us. You know, there's no silver medals in this uh, in this climate uh, risk uh, story. But there's some difficult trade-offs. I mean, uh, um, it's it's interesting that this question is talking about infrastructure is generally seen as a good thing, and that you know we have in in terms of what. Emmanuel was saying um, during the webinar about long-term thinking, you know, infrastructure projects are long-term, long-term payback and so on. But, and actually some power stations, pipelines are infrastructure. And if you think about um, uh, 
an emerging country where if it wants to get electricity to a remote some remote parts and the only way to do that is through a now is through a coal power coal powered fire station sorry a coal-fired power station. Mm. Um, you know, these are these are actually quite difficult trade-offs, aren't they? You know, it, yeah. immediate economic benefits versus oh, you know, putting, uh, there's, there's a, I think there's a recognition from from the, from the, the regulator, and you might have read it in, in the speeches there that that we're not going to get uh, to get to zero doesn't mean eliminating all carbon emissions. Uh, three quarters of of carbon emissions are substitutable and can be eliminated, but a quarter comes from aviation. Um, and a little bit more comes from, from animal uh, uh, feeds and, and, and output. And you can't substitute those. So what we're going to ground all the planes, you know, what you've got to do is you've got to increase the capacity of the, the Earth's lungs. And, and that, that's dealing, planting more trees, uh, dealing with uh, eliminating carbon from, so that the, the, the capacity of the, the Earth's lungs to, to take that 25% that you can't get rid of uh, and absorb it and stay neutral. That, so that is, the, that, that is the goal there. So three quarters you can at the moment. And again, this is without precedent. So there's, there's no right and wrong answers here, but this is you know, based on 2021 models. But perhaps what we need is some of um, Catherine's sort of um, tolerance. Um, actually, Ka Catherine, there's um, a nice short comment, which um, is rather sophisticated, I think, really. Um, happy to see values being spoken about a lot which is eroding a little now. Now, I don't know if what that is that, um, so there's two points here really, um, are values now more sort of front of mind, but it was that sort of a COVID thing when we were all sort of pulling together and feeling sorry for each other. And is that, you know, as we get back to normal, are we going to be sort of sharp elbowed and uh, out for our, ourselves again? Yeah, I think the, the idea of values being an important part of visioning, of culture, of, of individuals' behaviours has been taking, you know, taking um, front, front of stage for a while now. So I think if anything, it's not eroding, we're seeing it happen more and more. So the values that people would talk about in the past, people would play, they would be sort of play lip service to them. You know, we believe in such and such, we believe in such and such. But are we actually seeing the behaviours within the organisation that represent those values? Not necessarily. So people wouldn't really buy into it. I think that it's when things align that values mean something. And yeah, I think it's a, it's a very broad subject and... It, it can't, we can't just talk about values in a flippant way. It has to be meaningful. But are you optimistic that some, perhaps some of the more um, communitaire um, sentiment that grew up during COVID might stick? Wow, that's a, that's a very um, loaded question, isn't it? Am yeah. I optimistic? I think, yes, as an individual, I am optimistic. I do believe in, um, in, in you know, the, the, that we can build a better society. However, I think human beings are creatures of patterns, so they can quickly go back to the way it was and forget the lessons learned, as, as was mentioned uh, by, by Emmanuel earlier. So I think we have to be deliberate about it if it's going to stick. Mm. I, would, I would like to hope so, but the risks that we don't are, are real and we need to mitigate against yeah. them. Now, here's a question about possible antidote to any backsliding, um, which is one I want to put to Emmanuel, which is, um, are bank boards getting better at enabling whistleblowers to call out greedy and reckless behaviour from executives and line managers? 
Well, I, I think um, uh, bank boards are taking very seriously now uh, all the aspects of uh, compliance and conduct. Here we're talking about conduct. And um, the most of the banks now have uh, set up uh, uh, quite com concrete systems of uh, whistleblowings. Um, and in, in most uh, cases, it is now outsourced to uh, uh, specialized entities uh, who are used to deal with that, to protect the anonymity of whistleblowers. So um, I, I'm, I'm reasonably positive on that aspect because I think it's, uh, it, it's now sort of common standard for, for a bank board to make sure that uh, they have the right um, system in, pla in place to capture um, to capture uh, all the, uh, the complaints um, which are raised uh, and in including from, from uh, whistleblowers. Um, and at, at least I would say from, from a, a, a board perspective, it's, it's our duty to make sure that this system is in place and it's working effectively and that it's, uh, there is nothing preventing people to, uh, to report uh, misconduct. So I'm, I'm, yeah, I think it's now a, a common standard. Maybe coming back to, to the to broader ESG thing, which conduct is one aspect of, um, uh, we, we are seeing here many, many topics. Uh, and the, the big challenge is for the new topics, because for new topics, you have no standards. And you have to, we, we, the industry is, is just in the, in the process of building standards. We, we are talking about climate risk. There is no standard today. We, we have to make sure, and, and we will be able to avoid greenwashing when the standards will be in place and we'll be able to measure comparatively uh, on concrete and actual terms uh, what is done by banks in this field. And, and that is the, uh, the, the critical challenge for the coming few years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Should banks work more closely with insurers over emerging risks? Um, yeah, definitely they should uh, do this. I'm not sure to the extent to which they are doing it today. Um, you know, obviously, insurance companies are uh, always, uh, I think, at the cutting edge of uh, establishing, you know, what the risk levels and the risk tolerances are, and in a way that is actually often um, even um, more um, uh, accurate and uh, immediate than banks. Um, and so, there's always a lot to learn from a, a, a risk officer in a bank. And maybe Paul can help me out here, um, you know, as to how, how our insurance brethren are, are doing it and uh, how they're evaluating and pricing that risk and sometimes just trying to avoid it altogether if they can. Um, yeah. But um, th there's clearly a, a lot to learn from each other there and it's not new, but I think it's even more needed today. Uh, Paul? Uh, yeah, well, well, I'll give you a little look through the keyhole at, at a recent review of a risk register that, that I took to a board in, in April. Uh, we had 10 more risks than we had last year and, and a lot of those were emerging and you won't be surprised cybercrime and digital are... Uh, are on there, ransomware, uh, DDS attacks, etc. Uh, and this prompted me to do some research uh, at the time, just so that I could contextualize it for our board. And, and I used a, a report, a US-based report called PurpleSec. And, uh, and premiums for cybercrime in 2020 were $8.2 billion paid by worldwide, uh, compared to $4.8 billion in 2019. So, so a massive increase, particularly in that digital cyber ransomware crime space. So, so, you know, there, uh, the banks are identifying the risks, the insurers are pricing, the banks are paying premium, uh, and, but, but also being held to a very high standard relative to uh, how they ensure that their policies are 
um, they're being faithful to the conditions implied upon them, you know, by running penetration tests on themselves, having ethical hackers go at the systems, etc. So these new emerging risks are being identified. Uh, some of them are a little bit squishy and, and hard to, to, without precedent, but equally they're, uh, they're, 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 they're focus of attention. Yeah, so we're back to the um, number one in the CSFI banking banana skins survey, um, crime as uh, the, the, in all its uh, uh, multi-facets um, as, as the number one risk. Um, we're obviously uh, drawing to an end. Um, Cryptocurrencies keep coming up, and some, somebody's <laughs> simply said, "Why are they needed, and who benefits from them?" Um, the trouble is, I suppose that uh, if there's a demand for them, they will exist. Uh, who benefits from them? Well, on the yeah. crypto question, I think I think this is a good um, a good segue into uh, saying that we will finish. Try and run, <laughs> yeah, we will try and run events where we have you know board members like Emmanuel and Paul. Uh, on the on the you know executive side, and and then crypto crypto experts and and try and figure out you know why you know why this is such, such an important topic and why it's not going away and why we need to, to understand it. But I think well, um, except if someone feels they're an expert on this right now and want to understand no, this question, I would say uh, Olivia, it, it's hand to be down from from things that I've read and researched on cryptocurrencies. But at the moment, they're they're, they're it's embryonic um, and. Uh, cryptocurrencies are eventually, uh, uh, essentially digital cash. Uh, and why I say cash is that cash is, the, is the, the best anonymous method of payment, isn't it? You know, you, you spend cash, uh, nobody knows where you spent it unless it's been forensically examined uh, for transactions that you may want to keep off the radar. And the distributed ledger, Bitcoin and digital currencies give you that opportunity through person-to-person uh, -person exchange of value uh, that doesn't need to go through uh, a central clearing or to, to, to an intermediary. So um, that, that's about as much as I'll say at this point, but, but it is, you know, it's a digital surrogate for cash at this point, but it's not found its, its place yet. And there's still a lot of suspicion, concern, anxiety, you name it, for, for all very good and valid reasons. I mean, fortunately, it's that... not um, and, a substitute for cash in, in, in all that many situations. And I suppose that um, because it's money should be a store of value. And, you know, when you've got um, some of the Bitcoin value sort of hitting dizzy heights, you know, what, one month and um, plummeting the depths, mm. you know, plumbing the depths. Yeah. Emmanuel. It's interesting that, yeah, just, just on, the, on that point, it's interesting that to see that one participant mentioned that 99% of the dirty money was still coming through banks, which is absolutely untrue. Uh, and, and, but the reverse is true. 99% of the, of the dirty money is going through the cryptocurrencies. So um, it's something that definitely, as, uh, as Paul said, we, um, it's very specific. We, we could have a, a dedicated webinar, but yeah. you, then we need to invite really specialists about it. Yeah. And I'm, I'm definitely not... <laughs> Anyway, I just wanted to thank you and very generously for your time. You, you've been very generous. So thank you a lot for your very generous gift give of time. Uh, and I hope that this all um, translates into um, interesting uh, follow-ups and uh, opportunities. So thank you so much.